Good morning, friends. I invite you to open to the epistle to the Philippians, which is on page 981, if you're using the Pew Bible, page 981. We will be continuing in our series today in chapter 3, verses 1 to 11, as we just heard. Let's pray for the Holy Spirit to illuminate the Word. Lord God, we come into this Advent season recognizing that we are approaching the celebration of the Son of God born into the world in a manger. What a surprising way for the King of glory to come. And as we look with great expectation on the second coming of Christ, we ask you, Lord, this Advent season to be working in our hearts to fix our eyes on Jesus, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, that all the other things that distract us and that draw our attention away from Christ and toward ourselves would be muted out in this season so that we may pursue Christ and be found in Christ, having the righteousness that comes through faith in Christ. We pray in Jesus' mighty name, amen. Do you know who I am? You ever heard someone say that? Usually in this day and age of 24-7 social media and filming, it's it's celebrities who we catch saying that, and we love to watch this. We can't believe they're saying it. When they feel low, when they feel disrespected, not special anymore, not privileged anymore, they will inevitably, indignantly ask, do you know who I am? Do you know who I am? Right, in recent years, some of the most recent ones have been famous stars like Alec Baldwin, Reese Witherspoon, the great David Hasselhoff, Ron Burgundy from the movie Anchorman, and even Mike Tyson, heavyweight champion of the world, defending their honor against the detractors of the arts and the entertainment aristocracy by saying, do you know who I am? Now, by the way, a side note, if Mike Tyson ever asks you that question, you never want to respond by saying, what's that, Mike? I can't hear you. Just don't don't do that. Now, we roll our eyes at this kind of nonsense, right? Do you know who I am kind of righteousness? These people are arrogant, right? They're full of themselves. They're foolish. But I want to suggest that while we may not be a Tyson or a Baldwin or Ron Burgundy, And we probably won't say aloud, do you know who I am to someone? At least most of us wouldn't. As fallen creatures, as sinners, sinful human beings, we default to this type of, do you know who I am righteousness? At least in our hearts, even if we never dare to utter the phrase on our lips. We really believe, we human beings, that our own contributions, our own achievements, our own accolades and privileges, these things are good enough to give us right standing, not only in the eyes of God, but in the eyes of the world, and sometimes most importantly, in our own eyes. At the end of the day, it's our degrees, our diplomas, our skills, our prestigious occupations, our positions of power. These are the things that give us our deepest sense of ultimate worth our deepest sense of identity. I'm not just anybody. I'm a somebody. I matter. I'm kind of a big deal. 
And if we don't feel that way yet, we're hoping that we'll someday get to the point where that is true, where we would be a kind of person that matters, that's a somebody. In our text today in Philippians 3, Paul describes this in terms of two types of righteousness. The first type is in verses 1 through 6, and this is the do you know who I am righteousness. The right status that comes from the things we do, the things that we bring to the table. And then he's going to contrast that in verses 7 through 11 with another kind of righteousness, a better kind of righteousness. The do you know who I am in Christ righteousness that is based on Christ's death, Christ's resurrection, Christ's perfection, and Christ's eternal life offered to us by faith in the gospel. So let's start with the first kind of righteousness and look at verses 1 through 6. Now, as Paul typically does, he starts off very cordially, very quickly, says a few nice things to get the thing started, but he ramps up quite quickly to a kind of argumentative tone. Did you catch that in verse 3? He's not trying to make friends here when he uses this sort of language. Look what he says. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Doesn't sound like he's trying to make friends here. What what is he doing here? We have to understand who Paul is opposing. It's kind of like the people he's opposing in Romans and in Galatians and now here in the church in Philippi. This is early Christianity. Things are just getting started. Churches are meeting in people's houses. And Christianity has arrived out of Judaism and out of the Old Testament scriptures. And inevitably in that context, you have people who are saying, not only do we need faith in Jesus Christ, we need to be keeping the religious works of the Jewish law in order to have right standing with God. We need to keep the law and have faith in Jesus Christ. Now, why would I say that? Well, look at these terms that he uses, dogs. This is a term that the Jews usually use against pagans for being people who didn't belong to the correct people of God, who had a wrong standing with God. The Jews would call them dogs, and now Paul is turning that back around on Jewish Christians to say, you are the dogs. The Jews and the Jewish Christians would have been those who prized themselves on keeping the Torah, the law of Israel. They were workers of good. They were workers of the law. And what does Paul call them here? Evil workers, workers of evil. He says, they're those who mutilate the flesh, but did you catch this? We who worship by the spirit of God and truth are the true circumcision. And so Paul here is coming at the Jewish entry rite of circumcision, which has now been replaced by baptism in the new covenant. As Paul continues in verses three through four, He continues to contrast this law-based righteousness with the righteousness that we have in Christ. He does it by talking about the flesh. Three times in two verses, Paul hits on this. Listen to what he says. Verse three, we glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Verse four, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh. The end of verse four, If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. What does Paul mean by flesh? Well, flesh across the New Testament can mean many things. We can refer to like flesh and bones, human bodies. 
It can refer sometimes to what we translate as the sinful nature, the sinful part of human beings. I'm in the flesh, doing the works of the flesh. But these are the things that it means here. Here it means Paul's ancestry, his heritage, his point of privilege based on his adherence to the Jewish law that puts him and people like him and them alone in right relationship to God based on what they do. That's what Paul means by the flesh here. You might say, show me that, prove it to me from scripture. That's what Paul's doing in verses five through six. He sort of starts to play their game. The game of do you know who I am righteousness. If Paul were gonna play that game, here's how it would sound. Verses five and six. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, Benjamin at the time being known as one of the more prestigious tribes because they were loyal to the monarchy as it was breaking down. And we read about this in 1 Kings 12, 21. So a revered tribe. But notice that they're all aspects of his lineage and adherence to the Jewish law. Paul continues. A Hebrew of Hebrews, according to the law, a Pharisee. According to zeal, a persecutor of the church. According to righteousness under the law, blameless. And you're sitting here in 2023 and asking, how on earth does that apply to me? How on earth does that apply to me today? How does this principle of Paul and his confidence in the flesh apply? It applies like this. Confidence in the flesh for Paul, which meant confidence in his ancestry and his law keeping and his religious works, is really anything that we try to do to establish our own right standing with God and our own right status with the people in the world. Look at him, look at her, they're so righteous. Or our own right status in our own selves. That's what confidence in the flesh is today for us. And you might say, oh yes, I, that's like basic Christianity. That's Christianity 101. Why are you telling us this on a Sunday morning? Well, first, because it's in the text. Second, and that's a pretty good thing to do. Second, Paul starts by saying, look, to say these things to you again is not troublesome for me, and it is safe, beneficial for you. And that means that these people have heard this before from Paul, presumably, and he's saying it again. It isn't that true that anything that we want to do well, we need to repeat over and over again. You don't pick up an instrument once and become brilliant at the instrument. You need to repeat it. And so it's the same thing with doctrine. We never grow out of the basics of the gospel. We only grow more deeply into them. But you may be saying, I dealt with this a long time ago in 1976 or something like that. I don't need to think about it now. But it's worth considering this. To whom is Paul writing this epistle? Is it unbelievers or is it Christians? He's writing it to Christians. And so it is worth asking ourselves, are there elements in which I boast in the flesh, in the accomplishments and accolades that I provide that establish some sort of right standing for me in the world? Now, as a preacher, sometimes you use self-disclosure. It's kind of uncomfortable to do because in this instance, I'm gonna be talking about how I was arrogant and sometimes can still be. It's not fun to do that sometimes. But it's good to go out ahead and maybe see yourself in some of that as I do that today. If I were to preach a sermon on arrogance and just be like, can you believe all the arrogant people? In the, not me, <laughs> not me, Mike Tyson, 
said that thing. <laughs> it's ridiculous. We're all struggling with this, and it creeps back up just when we think we've kind of kicked it out. I'll give you an example. I've talked before about my love of music. Well, in college and really all through high school, but certainly in college, musical proficiency was my self-righteousness. I must have spent three, four, five hours a day every week practicing jazz, funk, fusion, metal, whatever kind of contemporary guitar. This is what I was studying in my undergraduate. And I didn't feel entitled. I felt elite. I felt like I earned it. You know, and it felt powerful to say, this is something I'm good at, not because someone just dropped it in my lap, because I worked hard at this. I earned this. This is part of who I am. Think to yourself, you may, you may be saying, gosh, that sounds arrogant, but are there, are there things in your life where you felt like that? I've worked hard and this is who I am. It's part of my identity. This is what I'm good at. This is me. Well, during that time, I had, I remember I was, had this enormous amplifier. It was called a Mesa Boogie Dual Rectifier. Okay, great name for an amp. This amp was twice as tall as I am, and it was probably loud enough that if I played one chord on it up here, it would blast you from this sanctuary all the way to Barnes and Noble in seven corners. It was way too big for the gigs I was playing. And I recall at one gig, this condescending guy came up to me, just had this kind of swagger, and I knew he was gonna say something, this snarky dude. And he says, wow, a dual rectifier. You think you can handle that amp, kid? <laughs> it was the laugh that got me. And I remember the spirit of my father and the spirit of my mother and the spirit of my mother's father and my mother's father's great-grandfather and the furious rage of all of Boston rush out of me with perfect arrogance in that moment. <laughs> Do I think I can handle it? Do I think I can handle it? Turn the amp to 11. Room, just start roaring in with some Jimi Hendrix and just showing off. And then I turn to the guy and go, I think I'm gonna be okay, buddy. <laughs> and I used to do stuff like that all the time. And it felt powerful and it felt strong. And it felt, you don't get the best of me. You don't get to walk all over me like I'm a doormat. This is what strength looks like. This is what power looks like. This is what confidence looks like. Luckily, I've perfected myself since then, and it's not a problem. <laughs> Should never hear a preacher say that. <laughs> Years later, I became a Christian, right? Learned the scriptures, translated these very verses from Philippians, from Greek. Surely I would have gotten over the do you know who I am righteousness, but sadly, no. What I've found is that proclivity just shifts emphases from one boast to the next, from music to academia, from academia to professorships, to professorships to publications. And you could still do the same thing with ministry. Same poison, different product. You can shift it into any zone. It's the case for me, and I suspect it's the case for many of us. And in my experience, the sinful jump from skill to self-righteousness happens almost automatically. We almost don't see it until it's already happened. Friends, that's the first kind of righteousness, the do you know who I am, self-righteousness that establishes itself by saying, if you have reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. But Paul in verses seven to 11 turns to a better kind of righteousness. 
The do you know who I am in Christ righteousness, not a righteousness that goes around in a vicious circle of religion, never able to arrive at where it's meant to go, not a righteousness that leads deeper into ourselves where there are no solutions to our biggest problems, but a righteousness that leads to a relationship with God in Jesus Christ and ultimately to resurrection, to the certain hope as we pray of the resurrection, not the at best partial hope of my resume. So let's turn to verses seven to 11 and look at the alternative kind of righteousness. You know, in verses seven through eight, Paul mentions loss three times. In the prior verses, he's mentioned flesh three times. This is important. He says this, whatever gain I had, these things I counted as a loss on account of knowing Christ. Verse eight, indeed, I count all things as a loss. I have suffered the loss of all things, and then he ups the game. I count them as rubbish. Now, in Greek, the word loss is semia, and the word rubbish is skubala. Why do I say that? Because it's alliteration that Paul is using here. The original re- listeners would have heard this. I consider it semia, semia, zemia, skubala, loss, loss. Loss, rubbish. Paul is not messing around. The word rubbish, by the way, that's a polite translation, can also mean dung or lumps of manure or rotten food or even rotten corpses. And yet we so like to to bring that righteousness back up to assist us retroactively to substitute for the righteousness of Christ, which sometimes seems so weak when we come up against the deep, difficult things of the world. We have lost that kind of righteousness, but Paul says we have gained something else. Verses eight and nine. I've lost all those things, he says, quote, because of the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. I've known and lost all these things in order that I might gain Christ and in order that I might be found in him. Again, this is the difference between religion and relationship that leads to resurrection. The righteousness that we provide leads us in a circle. It will not take us where it claims it can bring us ultimately. But the righteousness of Christ fulfills the law and leads us to a relationship with the living God. It's like Paul is saying, I've lost all things, but I have been found in Jesus Christ. But you gotta ask, why is he using this language of loss? other than the literary effect that it has, which is evident. Well, the language of loss that he uses is also found in Acts 27, when Paul is describing a shipwreck. And in the ancient world, and even today, if you're shipping stuff overseas across the ocean, sometimes the waves and the storms will get so crazy, so unbearable, that the crew will have to jettison the cargo in order to stabilize the ship, in order to bring peace to the vessel. And so Paul is basically saying here, he's using this idea, this language to say, what we're meant to do is toss overboard our self-righteousness so that we can be found in the righteousness of Christ that depends on faith. Yet, here's what I wanna propose. It's a great image. If we look at our lives, if you look at your lives, I bet it's probably the case that most of us are thrilled to throw over the side of the ship all of our shame. Throw that over the side. 
We're thrilled to throw our guilt over the side. We never want to see it again. We want to throw over our sin and death and all the negative consequences of these things. Throw them over, drown them in the sea. I never want them back. But pride, pride is the one thing that we fear if we fully let it go, we wouldn't be able to stand in the face of the difficulties of this world. You just don't know how hard it is in the world. I might need that again. Couldn't I just toss pride over the side in a fishing net and sort of drag it along with me behind the vessel? Just underneath the water, it's over the side. So that maybe, you know, if life gets tough, I can kind of draw on that retroactive self-righteousness, pull it back up onto the deck, and then when I'm done, we'll just throw it back over. Can't we do that? And then I can kind of glide safely to shore as I have my self-righteousness in tow rather than to count it as a loss? We have to ask, are we doing this? Are we doing this? Examine yourselves this Advent season. But how would you know, right? How can you tell if you're starting to pull up the net of self-righteousness once again onto the deck? And I think that we can tell by seeing how we respond when we are made to feel undignified, disrespected, like we don't matter, like we're low, like we don't have anything to offer into the world. And we can know when we've reverted to that place where we're trying to draw up self-righteousness retroactively onto the ship, this rubbish righteousness back by observing when our skills start to function again as objects of boasting rather than as instruments of blessing. You see, think about this. It's not our skills that we throw over the side of the ship. It's our tendency to jump straight from those skills to self-righteousness. We toss over the boast so that we can rightly realign the blessing under the righteousness of Christ. The call to Christianity is not to be mediocre, to have no effort, to be mundane, to just exist until you die. Christianity has produced some of the greatest minds and greatest thinkers and greatest technology. All these things are very, very good. But the shift from the skill to the self-righteous, self-important, status-seeking error happens really quickly. Recently, I, I saw this happening in my own life. It was a, a weekday night, which for me, those are usually crazy. There's sports games going on. There's all sorts of stuff happening, homework, everything. It was around 7.30, and I was doing something very, very important. I was working on animations for my PowerPoint slides for basic Christianity. Very important, people love when the letters just fly in and then sometimes they dash out. It's kind of 1990s sort of technology. And as I'm doing this, my seven-year-old daughter comes up to me in the midst of this, totally excited, says, Daddy, can you give me a singing lesson? And I sighed in my soul and probably out loud, you know, a singing lesson, honey, you know, it's 7.30, daddy's busy, it's almost bedtime, let's, let's do it another time, maybe let's do it tomorrow. Would you like some more candy instead or something? <laughs> I'm a weak person. And yeah, as this was playing out, I could almost see the net coming back up over the hull. I could feel it in my hands as I'm, I'm pulling it back up. I'm, I've got work to do, this is a big church, this is a big responsibility. This is important work. This is what I need to be doing. Only, I looked at her long face and it sort of 
jolted me. And somehow in that moment, grace broke through, sensibility broke through, and the net of self-righteousness just started to slip out of my hands and sink back into the ocean, drowning again. Let's sing, I shouted before I changed my mind. (laughs) Yes, okay, daddy, let's pull up Spotify. I'm like, yeah, they don't pay their artists well, but yeah, pull up Spotify. They should just bring back vinyl, whatever. Um, Okay, so what do you want to sing? To which he responded, Taylor Swift. (laughs) God, please, no. I do not deserve the torture of this sonic purgatory. Take this burden away from me, dear Lord. Can we please sing Celine Dion, My Heart Will Go On Instead? Yes, I love that song. And as she sang, time started to stand still for me. It was like a, a moment of suspended spiritual animation. And it wasn't that she was singing so well in this first time through it or that I was teaching so well. But I think what I was observing was life coming through her very being. Have you ever seen a musician or someone enjoying something and it starts to come through their whole being and they're expressing themselves, you're here, and she's doing all these motions. And you know what it reminded me of? It reminded me of what music felt like before the career, before the study, before the self-righteousness had sucked all of the blessing out to make it a boast. When you see that in the eyes of a child, in the eyes of someone else, and you recognize it, remember, it's like a glimpse of what life is supposed to be like. The future breaking into the present and saying, this is what really matters. Not the boast, the blessing. That's why your skill exists. And then I kind of snapped out of it when she grabbed the ottoman and stood on top of it and said, okay, now we have to pretend we're on the front of the boat during that scene in the Titanic movie where Jack and Rose on the front, you're here. (laughs) It was absurd. It was beautiful. That's what happens when blessing drowns out the boasting. And I felt my hand start to let go once again of the net. And in my peripheral vision, I, I could see it sliding down the side of the boat and into the sea, drowned in the ocean of God's grace. Hopefully forever, at least for now, at least for now, at least tonight. Brothers and sisters, when we find ourselves longing to establish ourselves and stand on the glory of what we once were, the glory days, or the glory that we now have and crave and idolize, or the glory that we so long for in ourselves in the future, I pray that we'll remember Paul's metaphor and teaching here. I pray that we will hold the net and then let go of the net. Let go of the net, just let it go. And you're asking yourself right now, I know these aspects apply to me in my life and maybe you're even thinking of some areas where they apply and yet you're probably still holding the net. You think, surely I could just take the net with me down the aisle. It's just a coffee hour. I'll drag the net with me for a little bit. I'll take it down Arlington Boulevard out the back of my car. Tomorrow, tomorrow I'll get rid of the net. Tomorrow I'll let go of pride. And then tomorrow never comes. And it's just today over and over and over again. Let go of it now. Don't leave this place now holding a net of self-righteousness to pull this rubbish back up and say, this is what really matters in life. Me and what I provide the crushing weight of all the wrong kinds of glory. Let the net go once again today and every day. And as it sinks 
into the depths of the sea, realize that you have now found safe passage on the ark of the righteousness of Christ. The ark that will bring you home. The ark that's based on his death, his resurrection, your future, your present relationship with him. A resurrecting kind of righteousness. A righteousness that brings gospel blessing in the wake of every jettisoned boast. Let's pray. Lord, we don't deserve your gospel, but we often act like we can earn it. Like there's something about us that's so lovely and lovable, and that's why you love us. Rather than the fact that the God of all eternity, who is love himself, stepped into this world, went to the cross, poured out himself in love, and defeated sin, Satan, and death in the resurrection. And that that is the righteousness that we're called to. That is our inheritance. And so this Advent, as we examine ourselves, let us not fix our eyes on ourselves. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, for he is the author and perfecter of our faith, and he is the Lord Almighty. This season, as we light candles remembering his first coming and his second coming, let us remember his daily arrival in our hearts to cast out the works of darkness and to live as people of the light. In Jesus' name, amen.